Dear patrons, this is another episode of BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, with myself, Alex Hochley in Sao Paulo, hello, George Hoare in London, hello, hey, and Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury, hello. Hey, how's it going? Um, rather well, rather well. We all in a good mood, guys, because we have to deal with a lot of um, <laughs> criticisms. Are we able to deal <laughs> with criticisms? Yeah, I like I like taking I like criticism from from listeners. It's criticism from you guys I don't like, so mm, I, I can deal with criticism from listeners. I think any criticism is a chance to improve. So yeah, it's it's a great you know a great opportunity to have all of your flaws, mistakes, shortcomings pointed out. You know to the whole world. Thanks, listeners, Hurled. for doing so. <laughs> to, uh, into your face, <laughs> help us improve, help us get better. So um, if you're new to us and you, you haven't gathered already, uh, Alpha Bonus Bonus is a type of episode which we do every month or two months, something like that. Uh, and we take listener questions and we engage in the debate that's been ongoing on the Patreon page over the course of the last episodes. Um, and so today we're dealing with... Uh, well, a whole bunch of episodes since the middle of January, uh, from episode 318 all the way to episodes episode 328. Um, but we have, firstly, uh, a, a caller, <laughs> an emailer, um, who sent in a, a sort of general question. So we're going to start there. Uh, Fintan O'Donnell, uh, apologies if I mispronounce that, um, asks us a question on the likely future state, uh, likely future of state decision making through modeling. Um, that is building models, not, you know, on the catwalk. Uh, so take three huge topics where predictive modeling is prevalent, says Finton. COVID, the economy, and the climate. A lot of decision-making in these domains seems to be, well, we'd like to do X, but if we do X, then our models say Y will happen. So the only course of action is Z, Z being lockdowns or austerity or some government over or under reach. And because the general public don't have the knowledge or skills or access, we kind of have to accept the apparent recommendation of the model without much ability to cogently rebut or protest. It seems models are the next step up again uh, from technocracy. It's not just unaccountable technocrats, it's technocrats relying on data experts who in turn rely on models. This process uh, gets even further out of reach as states roll out extremely complex AI techniques for entirely automated decision-making. The AI says you shouldn't get welfare, for instance. So the elected politician doesn't understand the advisor, who doesn't understand the data scientist, who doesn't understand the model, but they all still obey its decision. Where do we go from all this? Don't use large amounts of data, only use interpretable models, and whose interpretation anyway? I think that's a really, um, really good point. Um, and I I think does seize on, on something which seems correct to me, which is, that it further distances uh, democratic accountability from the source of information, right? It's not just relying on yeah. experts who ask, hey, what's going on? But it's even further removed. Yeah, it's a further kind of stage of rarefication from, <clears throat> you know, looking at what is this knowledge with or the science with capital T, capital S, to here is something that you can't even 
understand unless you have you know very you know a graduate degree in in modelology or whatever specific sort of model it is going to be and yeah i guess it is precisely that way to evade accountability and to move from the the person of the expert to the to the thing of the model i wonder what the next stage after that would be so yeah maybe it is ai it's the thing which generates the model or i don't think people would ever probably accept ai choosing between different models right that seems too too divorced too like reified that we would have actual political decisions made by non-human actors i mean that but you know it could be wrong that could be the way we're we're heading yeah i don't i doubt we would see that we'd more likely see something like you know um ai kind of deciding on face recognition and presenting face recognition of criminals or whatever or suspects or other to cops and you know they arrest people on the basis of an ai decision rather than a decision made by a person for instance would something like be, that i can see would this be the propensity to commit crimes in the future i think i saw a documentary with um a scientist on on this about how you can have they were it wasn't ai it was pre precogs or something I, I can't exactly remember but this is a thing right you if you're going to commit a crime and the ai says this with a, a high enough degree of likelihood some people would say that yeah they wouldn't i mean arrest. I can't imagine that they would roll that out kind of explicitly formalized legislation about it. It would involve far too much, um, you know, far too much difficulty in cutting back the existing legislation, which, you know, is formally at least based on presumption of innocence, even though, you know, that's kind of hedged in and chiseled back in all sorts of places. But I could imagine, for instance, like it would determine the way resources are allocated in um, municipal zoning in whether or not kind of police forces or public services are provided at different points about um, whether policing what kind of policing is deployed to what kind of particular area based on AI analysis of various trends anyway but I think the broader point is like what is the relationship between technology and technocracy right because if we're mm. moving away from technocratic liberal centrism which is one of the kind of premises of this pod, that this is the era that we're leaving behind. Um, at the same time as you have kind of the capacity for greater technological coordination, surveillance and control due to the development of AI, then where does that leave that capacity for, you know, kind of um, decision making, which is undertaken without democratic accountability, even without media you know mediation through uh, human decision making mm, let alone yeah. you know democratic oversight and those and it seems to me there's no you know simple answer i mean you know the kind of the the socialist answer would be obviously control of the control of the corporations that are actually involved in producing and manufacturing it right from the kind of um, top and throughout the structure of the organization but even that, I think, would probably be insufficient. You know, you would also need um, public education and awareness about what I is, AI is capable of, what it does, um, how it works, and the kinds of things that any um, politically responsible citizen would need to know as regards this um, tremendously powerful technology. Yeah, I mean, just to build on that, I think it's right to point to how unhuman or maybe post-human this is um, that, you know, if you're relying on an expert who's an advisor, and that's kind of where the buck stops, as it were, um, it's still human making interpretations, the growth of modeling uh, is something which has 
you know, uh, gone beyond the realms of uh, economy, right, of economists, because that's, that's where the kind of science and maths envy comes into the social sciences. But now it's spread far beyond that. And um, the uh, Finton is, is right to point us to, for example, the, the pandemic, where modeling takes um, a very uh, central role. And of course, that's not to say that modeling is wrong, that one should build models. Um, I think they're an important tool. But uh, I think what is notable in there is that the the human element gets further removed, right? So, the like the, we've as we've discussed, excuse me, um, listeners for referencing this, but the question of lockdown become became one that you know was never thought to be possible, and suddenly becomes possible because it, and it gets input into the model as something that is um, you know a realistic thing that people can might do and and accede to, um, where it previously wasn't. And of course, once that kind of input is built into the model. There's no que- there's no further questioning it because the model is spitting out its answers and you're only listening to the answers rather than looking at what sort of data is getting put into it and how it's how it's managed. Um, so the, mm. the opacity of it is yeah genuinely genuinely kind of frightening. Yeah, just just a quick thought on this, maybe final thought. I don't know if either of you have any more to add, but the the kind of the reference of climate models made me sort of think that I, I guess they haven't been very they've been around for a while. A lot of these kind of climate models and they haven't been very successful in mobilizing people i don't think a model is a very sort of successful um kind of political call to arms but it can be a you know potentially a more successful management um tool you can imagine it more in a kind of a slide in a slide deck rather than a kind of on a um i don't know on a banner at a protest or whatever so i guess but basically my point is just that we've had in the climate context models for quite a while and they haven't really seemed to have as much purchase as other forms of political action so i don't know maybe if we do but I mean, see don't more they? models but i mean all of the knowledge that we have about what the what is likely to happen with the climate with emitting more carbon and the consequence of that are driven from models and all environmental politics or politics about the environment ha- takes its information from those models in large part so i mean it would seem to me to yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm just not as familiar with the climate models as the kind of COVID ones. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't think of any names of famous climate like modelers, <laughs> but I can think of some COVID ones. That could just be my kind of uh, I don't know my narrow yeah. perspective. But well, anyway, anyway we, yeah. I mean, if you if you want to fuck models, then uh, there's there's a lot of. Uh, place for that in 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 the coming years anyway um let's move on uh we're gonna go kind of back to front i guess or front to back for the most recent to uh, the the oldest so we're gonna start with episode 328 the new scramble for africa um if you're looking for us to answer or to discuss questions that you've raised about the latest episodes, for example, the one with Quinn Slobodian, uh, that'll be in the next Alpha Bonus Bonus because we're, we're recording this on the day that uh, the Slobodian one came out. Right. So firstly, uh, Richard R. says, this may be a stupid question, but I think it's worth explaining what it is meant when people say that very few, if any, African polities before colonization were sovereign states. Are we talking about an ideological difference, a technological one, a combination like a technology of the state? It seems to me that a seldom mentioned aspect of sovereignty is just simply being hard to conquer. So when we say that a situation in the post-colonial context is different, we are saying it's no longer direct expropriation by a foreign-run colonial government because it isn't worth it for France or Britain to occupy the territory anymore. 
Now it seems we're talking about yet a third imperial or colonial situation where African nations aren't just not worth conquering. They're in fact more valuable to imperialists as nominally independent self-determining states that are operated by a local bourgeoisie exploiting a local population. Sovereignty itself seems a troublesome term in this context, as development of a self-governing social structure is needed in order to implement the kinds of labor and resource exploitation that is sought by foreign imperialists. Phil. Yeah, I would, um, I suppose I'd say a few things. Uh, if it's that, if that is the case, it's been the case for a while. Um, right. In as much as, you know, decolonization is something that happened a long time ago. So if the costs of, um, you know, if the costs of new forms of, imp- of old forms of imperialism became too much um, and it became easier to manage these dependent relationships through the forms of independent, of sovereign independence, you know, that's been the case for a while. Um, on this question of, uh, you know, were there, no, I mean, I think there weren't meaningfully you can't really meaningfully talk about sovereign states before um european colonization and imperialism um even i think for the for those kind of communities or um pre-modern states that might have been especially hard to conquer so i think to be meaningful to talk in terms of sovereignty you have to presuppose some degree of modern an underlying kind of substratum of modern social structure, um, politics, the idea of a public sphere. Um, and those things are just implied in the concept of sovereignty that, um, it, you know, um, implies if not like a modern, you know, like a fully kind of modernized society or economy, at least a degree of political and legal modernization. Um, and how far that goes obviously has, you know, been one of the big questions of, third world politics and developing country politics over the last um, 50 years. But no, before colonization, I don't think it would be meaningful to talk in terms of sovereign states in Africa, or even perhaps, you know, even in talk, to talk in terms of sovereign states in countries like pre or places like pre-Republican China, even though, you know, the Chinese empire was kind of nominally recognized as a diplomatic interlocutor um, by the, um, you know, by the imperial Western states. So um, moving on, another question, kind of looking at historical comparisons, ones that we prompted in the episode, looking at the old scramble for Africa and the new one. Elias Braun uh, says, if displacement in the classical Hobbesian sense, uh, just to remind you, listener, this was the idea that, you know, imperialism um, ultimately is an exercise in displacing domestic conflicts externally. Um, So if displacement in the classic Hobbesonian sense plays a role in the new scramble for Africa, it's surely on the Chinese side. They're the ones who in today's world have a huge capital surplus because their population isn't rich enough to consume what they produce. This is also the reason they're the only ones who can make a decent economic offer to Africa, while France, Russia, or the US have to make do with military or political means. Elias adds that Germany is also like China in the situation, except that they displace it mainly onto the rest of the Eurozone rather than to Africa. I think that's correct. Yeah, Elias is right, though. I mean, I would I just qualify that by saying, I mean, the classical Hobsonian sense was also political and demographic, right? It wasn't just kind of um, the need to export uh, capital that couldn't be absorbed within the economic core. He also saw it as a political question 
Um, and also a demographic one, which it no longer is. You know, this was still, his era was still the era where you had like significant emigration to um, to settler states, not only Australia and South Africa, but also, you know, Kenya. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously I mean, if there's was... an uptick in class conflict within China. Hmm. We see what that happens and where they start shipping greater numbers of Chinese uh, migrants, you know, settlers into, to, you know, Central Africa. Yeah, but Republic. they're not settlers. I mean, they're workers, you know, mm. they're not there kind of um, as part of the governing authority within this, within the involved state. And apparently, you know, I mean, it's not something I know of or I know much about, but apparently, you know, the Chinese kind of, they're kept very separate by a deliberate choice, both by the host African state, as well as by the Chinese government, that they tend to be kept insulated from the local population but it's an interesting question. Like, I don't know if there have been any studies on it. Uh, perhaps listeners can tell us of the, um, you know, whether or not anyone has studied how the Chinese state or corporations make decisions about who gets sent to the big infrastructure projects in in Africa, whether mm-hmm. it's a way of dealing with, um, you know, kind of troublesome types, with labor dissidents, um, whether it's a reward, you know, for loyalty, you get kind of higher rates of pay or whatever if you go abroad, whether it's seen as like a kind of a cushy posting compared to working in, I don't know, you know, kind of working in uh, the factories in China or whatever. So all of those questions, it seems to me, would be very interesting. And I don't know if anyone studied them. No, good. Yeah, good. Good point. I mean, my point or my answer to this response to this would have been quite similar in that that's an economic displacement that Elias talks about. But what about the political one? Aside from yeah, potentially moving people either as a reward or a punishment um, away from China to to Africa, there is something about the way that the Chinese state manages class conflict within it. This kind of you know not democratic. Um, society of 1.7 billion people this is a massive potential kind of democratizing force or energy and the question of like what what effect does that have or or how is that displaced or managed and how does it kind of go externally or how is the the ccp kind of able to you know to redirect it or to, to keep it under control partly by kind of maybe release valves like what they're doing across the world i mean that's that's a it is a good question, right? How is that um, displaced? Because it isn't a class conflict along the same institutionalized lines as um, what Hobson was talking about in Europe in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, at, at on, along similar lines, in that episode, we discussed and debated who within the core imperialist countries is in favor of African interventionists who who's invested in it, uh, and JKJKJK prompts an answer which they think is a fairly boring one. But it's that every Western society has a certain percentage of its electorate that is ideologically interventionist and neoconservative. These voters are typically very fickle and care about foreign policy, basically to the exclusion of all other issues. As a result, they tend to be quite culturally and economically flexible, but they will absolutely swing and flip based on foreign policy views. So this is what happened in the U.S. with a pipeline of, uh, of kind of neoconservatives from the Republicans to the Democrats that was accelerated under Trump and was significant enough uh, to Democrats to bother pursuing um, in terms of pursuing greater foreign intervention, I think, particularly given that most voters care very little about foreign policy and won't change their votes based on this. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. 
I'm, I mean, I'm, um, I think, I'm sure it's true that there is a slender kind of portion of the electorate that does kind of vote in these terms. And it probably has an influence that's, you know, disproportionate to its actual kind of electoral or demographic weight. But I do think, you know, like um, these questions of, uh, say, the state's commitment to development, for instance, or development aid and humanitarian involvement, they weigh on political well, they kind of have a drag effect on wider political debates um, in a way that's not obvious and is perhaps not easily untangled by the kind of um, general opinion polling which is used to measure, um, you know, kind of overall political views. And this is what I try to develop in the in the discussion that we had, that it serves as a backdrop, you know. So if we take, for instance, you know, like I'm sure there's layers of the middle classes, professional middle classes that um, wouldn't perhaps vote on a party's kind of record in development, but would nonetheless feel it's important that the state is committed in some way to um, contributing to overseeing, you know, climate change development initiatives in African countries, or helping to alleviate poverty, and not that they, you know, not that they will have any great kind of day to day interest in following it, but that it matters in the way in which images, you know, political images and political offers are constructed, and how it um, cultivates um, a certain kind of political outlook and political offer. You know, this is what we stand for ideologically. So I think it's, um, you know, probably... Is it there also a, a constituency, much more traditional one, of what would be, for example, in Britain, traditionally characterized as telegraph readers, which is to say, like, retired colonels um, from the army who themselves are invested in sustaining you know britain's role in the world and an imperial vision and so on um and in the us that's certainly the case yeah, but they um, wouldn't be african they wouldn't be people who care about africa right no, those are the kind not. of people no. who would want to be like you know we need to spend more money on tanks to support ukraine or yeah. like they would feel very irate about the fact that you know russian bombers are kind of flying off the estonian airspace or yeah, whatever or, and went insane right. at the idea of jeremy corbyn because like he dared, yeah because he, he you know kind him. of talked to venezuela and um you know invited the ira into parliament or whatever even though Sinn fein you know were kind of uh, have democratically elected representatives that can go into parliament you know anyway the point being i think the people who care about these kinds of things are in fact um not the telegraph you know not the old colonels yeah um, i mean i think, I think that's it's... important I think it's, you know, the old colonels is one constituency, but it's probably, and they're interested in foreign policy directly, but I think you probably have a much larger constituency who are interested in foreign policy kind of indirectly, as it were. So who are interested in like intervention, but not for necessary military reasons, but for humanitarian intervention reasons or human rights or climate or whatever. So I think maybe that is the, and I, I guess it is a little bit different in the US, but I'm thinking that, you know, for everyone um telegraph colonel you lose you can get two kind of humanitarian intervention people um if you if you package it the right way so maybe that is a, a kind of a bigger domestic constituency than the you know not to if there are any telegraph colonels listening which seems unlikely thanks for listening um but it yeah doesn't seem like a particularly large or growing section of domestic populations okay so um to move on to the next episode uh, episode 326, What Did Capitalism Do Next?, where we discussed whether we're moving beyond neoliberalism. Uh, in that 
um, episode, we discussed kind of two different camps which are within domestic politics, particularly in the US, who are pushing towards a some sort of ostensibly post-neoliberal politics, uh, one of greater state intervention. And one is um, called supply-side progressivism, which is on the center-left, and another is a um, productivist kind of new right, new nationalist right, um, which also has certain, uh, I don't know, maybe Catholic influences or other kind of uh, traditionalist aspects to it. Um, So uh, some of these questions refer to these two different camps. So firstly, Eli says uh, the productivist center-left supply-side progressivism stuff isn't real or fake. It's a terrain of struggle and competition between class strata. How much actually gets built or produced depends on the outcomes of that struggle. Uh, If you want to talk about proto-theocratic reactionary welfare statism with popular support, uh, which is to say that other camp that that, uh, was referred to in that debate, I have two words for you. Shah's party, complete with right-wing PMC transferiat of identity grifters. This is uh, a reference to to, to an Israeli party. Um, Eli says, has Italy reached these levels of bunga yet? Take that country of the future. Yeah, indeed, maybe the country uh, that must not be named uh, that begins with an I and ends with an L um, is is maybe the real country of the future. But we're not going to go there because uh, it's a country that must not be talked about ever. So anyway, we're going to move on to the next question. Richard R. says, uh, the Latin majority that is building in the U.S. is at most passively Catholic. Uh, and, and this this was a, a, a question that doesn't really relate directly to the question of post-neoliberalism, but uh, specifically about to the political nature of Catholics and Catholicism in the U.S. Um, it was a rather popular comment. The vast majority of religiosity from this population is evangelical and often explicitly anti-Catholic, and the few committed Catholics are maybe mainly PMC Latinos who immigrated generations ago or else have been around the U.S. since the Treaty of Guadalupe. My experience with the recent wave of white conservatives con- converting to Catholicism is that they basically just aren't Catholics. They ignore the Pope and relate to the Bible in the individualistic way that Protestants do, and are mainly looking for a way out of relativistic political theory that can give them a point at which they don't have to think critically anymore. They are weird, disorganized, unlikable, and are overwhelmingly the overdressed white male segment of the PMC that is still purposely confused by pronouns in spite of being forced to attend workshops about them for half a decade. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. so I think... (laughs) I should pick this one up because I've made the um I made this case and I take Richard's point about the you know I'm sure he's right about the kind of the the oddity of uh, you know those white conservatives converting you see them pop up on social media occasionally but the um on this question of the larger kind of uh passively catholic thing i think that's all that's required really for the point i was trying to make i wasn't suggesting that there's some wave of um you know that there's some wave of catholic religiosity about to sweep the u.s on the basis of a coming latino majority only that there is kind of you know there's going to be a greater cultural and thus demographic and political weight in that direction and that's all that's really needed you know to give kind of um a greater influence and scope to certain kinds of conservative Catholic thinkers um, who are becoming more prominent at the moment um, and associated with some of the Chicago kind of lawyers. So, you know, I think passive 
cultural Catholicism is all that's really needed for it to manifest in the political realm in a way, you know, that it hasn't done in the past. Yeah, uh, and I mean, another comment along the same, um, on the same topic. In fact, there's another two. So here we go. Uh, JKJKJK says, I think Alex is wrong on one point. The post neoliberal conservative movement's uh, best representative is Josh Hawley. Um, and indeed, perhaps he, he actually once retweeted me and it was just my mentions went in, in crazy, as you can imagine. I uh, think what you want of him, but he has shown much greater willingness to buck the GOP's recent historical economic consensus than the others mentioned. Some of his proposals are actually quite bold and far reaching in the scope of political economy. Um, you holy, but in response to that, uh, no, no, but he, he's a he's a Herculean, it seems. So, all right, I mean, the so actually, well. you're the one yeah. who's directing the the kind of the Trumpian yes, wing of the GOP or the post-Trumpian so, wing of the GOP. So in fact, in fact, you're the best representative of post-neoliberal conservative movements. Who did mm. you um, initially suggest? I'm I'm the puppet master. Yeah, um, I don't remember who I who I had suggested. I think Marco Rubio. Um, I think mm. most likely, but it's right that Holly is. Get your, can you get your friend Josh Holly on the pod? Mm, interesting. Um, that will lose us a lot of listeners i suspect but who knows it could be it could be good anyway um elias braun uh, says read the catholic right it doesn't seem to me that they'll actually have much influence nor will other industrial policy adjacent or pro-worker types a la holly or rubio since the financial crisis the republican party hasn't been able to organize itself to do anything except tax cuts and dismantling the state and even then they couldn't even abolish obamacare I don't see any reason that should change, and it doesn't seem that compact or American affairs type conservatives are actually gaining any real influence outside of Twitter. So in my opinion, it'll be the Bidenists who, which will have the determining influence on the post-neoliberal paradigm. The EU will get there 10 years later when the Germans finally understand that the end of history is over. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, the German yeah, I think is, is bang right. on. Um, but I also, I, also, I also suspect that. I that's think, yeah, I suspect, yeah. I mean, I it, I, right. the, the kind of shift toward a past neoliberalism, um, even within the elite, you know, within kind of competition between elite factions is retarded um, in the sense of being slow, um, be, precisely because of the lack of overt competition over the, over it, I think. Um, it would. So, I mean, the part of the reason that we're still, still in neoliberalism is precisely that there is um, not sufficient pressure from below, nor even probably sufficient competition between elite factions. Um, if that increases, then, then, you know, I think that would push things, that would accelerate matters a little bit. There was a good piece by Michael Lind in Unheard recently where he broke down the different kind of wings of the um, of the GOP, what they're competing over and, um, you know, identifying the, who the, um, the post-Trumpists, as he calls them, Josh Hawley in particular, uh, led by Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and where they're headed. And it was a very good, you know, it's a very good breakdown if listeners are interested. I think, though, Elias is right on this. I think that it probably will be the Bidenists. Um, the point that Lynn made there was that the, you know, the, the Republicans will be forced to default to anti-woke politics as yeah. a cover for the fact that most of them just don't have no desire to um, formulate and innovate new kinds of policy. And so the way they deal with it is basically like the Bushes did. You know, they kind of yeah. domestically, they their pitch was um, on Supreme Court stuff, on um, rolling back a gay marriage. This is the, Bush pres- the, the two Bush presidencies during the war on terror. But politically and economically, they were just kind of, you know, libertarian uh, 
libertarians domestically interventionists abroad yeah i mean it's worth just just dropping in here this you know when we wrote the book um we did sort of predict that you know given we're in the end of the end of history it's it's a case of the older structures and ideological movements kind of being undermined decaying but it's not straightforwardly here are the new things here are the kind of the new uh movements which you know have a a very clearly defined social force and a you know a lot of forward momentum to to destroy these things instead it is you know a process of like these things which are slightly different but contradictory for different reasons emerging for a short period of time uh, at least in the you know foreseeable future in this kind of interregnum period so yeah i mean it's it's kind of consistent with what we wrote that this post neoliberal conservative period or like movement it doesn't seem to have a really clearly defined social base it doesn't seem to have a really sort of at this point at least coherent set of ideas so yeah it does seem like you could have the the reformulated kind of present or current things having quite a lot of continued influence despite their you know their many problems or their kind of lack of of ability to to really reproduce themselves yeah it seems that we will indeed have to continue biden our time biden our time. sorry i missed that i missed that biden one our time. oh yeah <laughs> Uh, episode 323, Tasty Frictionless Convenience, about the app economy and particularly uh, delivery apps and the kind of uh, form of logistics that represents. Uh, Alex McKay says, as someone who's been employed by a restaurant as a delivery bicyclist and done the same job as a contractor for Postmates, I am relieved to hear that Phil's order history only contains virtuous proletarian options like fast food and none of the frivolity of laptop class diners. Uh, Absolutely actually, not. I, think I leave George, that. For I think Alex that was George, George. Actually, I think no. I think that was George who made that. Oh, it was point. me. It was me. Or was it you? Yeah. No, I. Yeah, Phil was being like, "Oh yeah, I, what was it? I only use it to get McDonald's. I don't use it for any of your, your five fancy guys." Actually, I don't five guys. McDonald's. I actually I'm had a, five I'm... guys a couple of days ago, and it was really good. Have to say, um, but I don't think I've ever had it delivered. No, I mean, yeah, I guess there's there's a there's a whole uh, set of levels of like virtue signaling and counter virtue signaling in what you order on delivery so i'll, I'll leave that to phil yeah or not uh anyway so uh, um another point is that phil's arguments are all over the place in this episode how are delivery apps just an increase in convenience versus previous models when their existence depends on both cheap money and ignoring labor rights saying that these companies are only exploiting pre-existing loopholes vaguely blamed on the direction of capitalist development also makes no sense when Uber and Deliveroo are the companies who were the first to start exploiting these loopholes. They're the battering rams pushing capitalist development in that direction. Phil seems to want to have it both ways, defending his own use of the apps as just fine, while their expansion is nebulously attributed to the quote-unquote laptop class. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, um, I guess I'm... I would struggle to see which strand... I mean, I'm not denying Elias might be right that my arguments were contradictory or inconsistent. I'm struggling to recreate precisely the strands, you know, the strands in my head that um, as to how it ended up like that. I mean, I would say I don't, I don't want to say that their expansion... I want to uh, attribute their expansion to the laptop class. Um, rather that there is a, you know, that the... 
that particularly in the post-lockdown world, that you have a certain kind of standard of living that's dependent on a service class that's associated with the apps. So it's not that this service class, it's not that this kind of, um, that the laptop class, if you want to use that phrase, has, um, you know, is responsible for um, the emergence of these companies, but only they're a constituency or, as you know, within the marketplace that helps to, to sustain them. And that will be something which is locked into a degree as a result of lockdown. Though inevitably, I think, you know, the, um, the app-based, the gig economy is going to take a battering inevitably as um, both as labor organization makes inroads in those sectors of the labor market and as, you know, as the, um, as the sluices of cheap money um, are kind of blocked up. So uh, I don't, I mean, I can't, um, I can't really uh, say more than that, apart from also that, you know, I don't have any kind of, I'm not, um, I don't feel guilty about using the apps. Um, And I don't, I'm not, you know, when I say I'm I'm not uh, morally kind of, don't feel the need to morally make a case one way or the other. Just a question on this idea of the laptop class. What are the other classes in this model? Do you have like the desktop class who are like, the somewheres anywheres, the anywheres being the laptop class, the digitally excluded class, the the iPod, the iPad Pro class. I don't, I just, I don't think I've, I must have heard that phrase before, but it's only just kind of made me realize that, you know, it's well, The not... laptop class, I guess it's transplanted from laptop bombardiers. So the people are always kind of gunning for war from behind their laptops. Right. Um, and I guess, you know, you could say it's the people who kind of used to work in Starbucks on their scripts or their novels. Um, you know, you have, this you have, back you have the in sickle the kind class. Of glory days. You have the sickle class. You have the hammer class. You have the laptop class, right? You have right. the. Uh, I don't know if that makes. You have any the sense syringe always, class. But... Those are doctors. You have the. <laughs> okay. You know, you have the, all right, all right, the needle right. class, who are the who are sewers <laughs> or on. drug addicts, whatever. Um, you can, that you can could also be the syringe class. I, I just want to make so, it clear that I hate these kind of little terms because they're always said with a sneer as if like somehow to signal that you're superior and not part of them, whether you're doing it to sneer at the workers or sneer at the professional middle class. It's meh. Not for me. Anyway. So, um, you're, so you're just sneering at the people who are doing the sneering. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You can't yeah. escape it, mate. I'm afraid. That, that, yeah. is, that is cold. Yeah, that is, that is called sneering. Aufhebung. That is what <laughs> oh, that yeah. is. No, no. That is just a lame failure to have an antithesis. And it's lame and mm. failed. Anyway, you won't have a synthesis. Uh, one last point on this. Jonas Halen says, you talked about the workers who work in the gig economy and their poor conditions, but it is so much more than just wages. There are hardly any unions in the gig economy. Another perspective I missed is how surveilled they are by others all the time. The companies always see where the workers are. And as soon as they've picked up the food, the customers can see exactly where the order is. This creates incredible stress for the workers, and there are many cases where they've collided with or been hit by cars. Surveillance capitalism at its finest, indeed. Okay. Yeah, um, fair. So there were loads of comments, questions, debates, as you can imagine, about uh, the episode 321 and 22, COVID consensus, uh, where we had Toby Green and Thomas Fatsy on. We're going to try to digest and represent all of these, um, not least because I... I personally couldn't tolerate another debate about covid but that's me um and maybe maybe phil and george are chomping at the bit or champion at the bit to, <laughs> to, to 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 rage about lockdown again phil is doing that that um that face that george that jack nicholas makes that is used as a gif 
You guys know what I mean while he's making that face. Well, anyway, from The Shining. No, I don't think that's it is just, from The Shining. That's just I think his, it's from something else. That's just Phil's no, face. From, I mean, uh, it's not Phil's face. It's from the uh, what is it? It's the one where he's um, the drug lord in with an Irish gang in Boston, I think. Anyway, the Departed. The Departed. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yeah, yeah the, the Departed. Departed yeah. Ah, I think you need anyway. to pronounce it with a proper accent. Anyway. Yeah, you're right, George. Um, okay, so um, just two questions, two points on this. Maximum Ben said, it would be really helpful if those who oppose lockdown would give an example of what mortality rate might warrant a lockdown. 20%, 50%. Is there any level of danger that would warrant a lockdown in the minds of those who are so opposed to these measures used when encountering an unpredictable, actively mutating virus? I, I mean, I just want to briefly respond to this. I think that that the question is bizarre because it's like looking for approval for lockdown at some point when lockdown is a completely unprecedented policy it's not like it was this established way of doing things and that we need we need to set a, a threshold for when it should be rolled out this is a, a very recent innovation something thought previous previously thought impossible impossible because people wouldn't accept it impossible because it was logistically impossible for a number of reasons, it was seen as, and, and potentially not even effective, um, which, you know, it seems that it was not, it was either not effective or not effective proportional to the disruption that it caused across a whole range of issues, including health. As it happens, I think that I would be in favor of a lockdown if there was an Ebola outbreak, if that was seen to be the, the, a, a good response to it. But uh, that isn't where we are. So it seems to be a question which is... Um, already which is you know deliberately phrased to be looking for a specific answer so um i'm not going to go there. i think i mean it yeah i think this i have to agree with what you said alex it's like it's the difference i think between thinking of um thinking of emergency or extreme scenarios concretely and thinking of them abstractly and it's there's a huge difference you know it's a bit like the debate over torture during the war on terror Right. Um, yeah. About looking for opportunities to kind of um, blur the edges of the prohibition on torture um, and constantly framing it aggressively in terms of, well, what do you, you know, at what point would it be acceptable to, um, you know, to torture someone if there was this kind of hypothetical scenario of somebody who knew where the ticking bomb was, even though, you know, from what I recall of my reading on that, you know, there's literally no case, literally no case where they've ever had. Um, somebody in custody who knew of like, you know, a ticking bomb that was going to go off in 24 hours or something like that. No kind yeah. of recorded. So, you know, I think framing it like that is and, and, never... And the, and the prohibition is still important to maintain, even, in, even if you accept quietly that there would be a ticking bomb scenario where you would allow torture. Because if you start yeah, to go was... soft on it, then you allow, yeah. Then you, then you allow yeah, that torture was to be up point. Yeah. yeah, you can't like, you know, like the point is not to, the point is not to deformalize, you know, the the kind of the law. And I'd say the same, like, you know, with these kinds of um, hypothetical, at what point would you be willing to countenance a lockdown? You know, like there's no point kind of trying to formulate um, the, or the act of trying to formulate your responses contingent responses in these abstract scenarios is already to concede to the state of emergency and the exception and to blur the no to blur the line between the norm and the exception and if you're already doing mm -hmm. that then you're in that realm of um of being ruled in this kind of quasi permanent state of emergency and so it ha you know it has to be resisted um so, i think so what's what's GGX's point then that you should have a, a law banning it and then break that law 
no, break that principle was, in, in a concrete situation if it if no, it's necessary. No, point was like, yes, if you, you know, you might end up like that it should be the decision of a concrete individual. If the individual decides in this kind of absurdly concocted extreme scenario that they decide they wish to, you know, they're going to torture the person, it's not something that should be allowed by law and the person once they do it they should be expected to be held accountable for yeah. breaking the law by torturing the suspect so mm. you know it's not something which the it can be palmed off onto the higher authority of the state on the basis of um blurring the line between norm and exception and deformalizing the law in favor of institutionalizing basically permanent emergency and so i agree with yeah. alex you know i think even to even to engage on this terrain is already to concede too much, which isn't to say that there might not be scenarios of some kind of, um, you know, virus with much worse, uh, you know, with some kind of disease with a much worse mortality rate and even more kind of contagious where, you know, extreme measures might be warranted. Um, but to think in those terms, I think, is to concede too much. Yeah, we shouldn't concede in advance. I mean, I, there is one point that I wanted to make that is that I understand, like, kind of effectively the drive for saying yeah lockdown is fine and that because you know the i get the appeal of some drastic state action which overturns the order of things which shakes us out of our stupper and you know is is this absurd you know kind of extreme authoritarian action which just gets things done and that we resolve problems You're hard without for emergency with, rule you get excited well, by it yeah no you but i think we have and no, capitalism I have to, but but, but look, I think we have to at least, uh, you know, be sympathetically try to understand that and be honest about our, that we might ourselves feel that, yeah, fuck it. If something that's just rip up, that rips up all the rules and changes things, right? I, we get it because, I mean, I get it. I understand it because we're, we are frustrated with the stasis in which we find ourselves. And that's the sense that no one actually is taking charge, right? That, that society just sort I of can't. drifts. So, I'm sorry. Any more, you know, any more than I could take kind of, I could sympathize with the torturer in GJX hypothetical situation. It's similar to these debates that we always had in classrooms, right? There's a genocide going on in Pretendistan somewhere. Um, what would you do? You know, would you bomb? Would you intervene? Would you get the UN involved? And it was always, it's the but same I understand kind the of... Conservative, but I understand the conservative too, because I mean, you know, we're all liberals here, so we, we don't want to torture, but, uh, you know, but, but with, but you might understand the conservative who's like, but can, when can we do torture? Okay, torture is not a good, a good correlate for lockdown, uh, you know, but, or analogous to lockdown, but it's like, when can we accept that drastic measures will but be that's taken. the point you don't have no but you the, but that's the very that's the point you're not going to be given kind of um you know can specify detailed frameworks about when it's legitimate to to be a barbarian no i but like i i'm not making the case to accept these hypothetical situations and to set out in advance when we can do these extreme situations merely i'm saying that i understand the drive for that but then that should prompt serious questioning why do we want that right i think that's the question to ask and, and it's a question that i would put yeah. back that I'm, I'm saying this to put it back to maximum ben who's um along with that question was very critical of of uh the interview and of of what toby green and thomas fatsy said in that interview so i'm putting this back to him but also you know to me to everyone to say yes okay we can recognize this drive for accepting extreme action okay but where does that come from 
you know, and, and I think that's a good discussion to yeah. have. I think, yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard about that Zizek um, kind of thought experiment or, or point or whatever, but it's it's a really interesting one. And it kind of makes me think that it is about, like, Alex, your kind of explanation of yeah, there is something in the emergency solution. But isn't that kind of, it's just about being reassured. It's about not having to take responsibility to make a tough decision at a certain point in time. You're like abdicating. You're saying like, here is this limit or here is this situation in which finally I'm relieved of the, of the, like, of the pretty heavy responsibility to decide whether I like want to, to engage in this course of action or that course of action. It seems like, yeah. and, that, and maybe that is part of the appeal of, of lockdown is it sort of, it does solve the problem in a sense of like all of the, 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 the thinking and arguing about what to do is kind of like, you know, it's all solved because, you know, this is the solution and it's, it's a pretty crude one, but bang, that's where but it that, is. I mean, is I hadn't it. really thought I mean, about that before, but the way that you, that you, you kind of outlined it made me think that that's must be part of it, that it is a way to sort of not have to engage in that difficult decision of like, Oh, do I talk to this person and, and, you know, go to jail for it? Well, shit. Yeah. I have to, to save this. I don't know. <laughs> it's always like school children visiting this museum where they've got the bomb or whatever, but yeah, anyway. But that but that's it. I mean, you know, that that is what sort of I was driving at that you know, trying to make decisions on public health, which means balancing off various different things, um is tricky and a lot involves ambiguity and debate and you know, etc et and you know, being a covid absolutist and saying, yeah, lock everything down and we will just resolve this has a certain appeal because it like, as you say, it alleviates a certain anxiety that is otherwise there. Um, but it's what, an authoritarian. I mean, you know, I don't see what the appeal is that would be different. We're all authoritarian, from... but we're all authoritarian. I mean, you know, if we could be, we would be, right? I mean, there's this that just well, get like, things so done, right? I can no. I mean, I you know, I understand that that is like, um, you know, that there is kind of a, an inchoate kind of demand for that, um, you know, and uh, particularly in kind of times of political stalemate, deadlock and the general kind of drift and decay that we see at the moment in industrialized states. So yeah, to that Caesarist, extent, I understand what you mean. A Caesarist yeah, solution. That there is that kind bit. of, yes, yeah, exactly, you know. Um, and that lends itself to the populist insurrections of various kinds and charismatic leaders and what have you. Um, but, I mean, it's, you know, that doesn't mean that it's something which should be pulled back from and resisted and understood as well, rather than indulged. No, I'm not. Absolutely. I'm not arguing to indulge it. I'm, I raise it so that we can look at it squarely in the face and ask where so, it comes from and why. So I have a I have a question then for the like, so is is no lockdowns under any circumstances also a kind of reassuring you don't have to make a political decision position? And it's just extent. hyper, yeah. it's just very libertarian rather than very authoritarian. I mean, um, yes, uh, it would be, yeah. Hmm. Oh well, the truth is in the middle. Aristotle was right, so no, yeah, it's not that all, it's in the middle, interest. but that it's <laughs> it's not that it's in the middle, but that it's concrete. With and there's yeah. a difference, I think. Yeah, yeah, and that needs uh, or demands that you engage with that concrete thing and come up with solutions. Anyway, um, one one other point on this: um, Andrew Mountford said it was quite terrifying in the way that raising questions about the impact of these lockdown policies on the developing world or on precarious workers or on mental health or on education wasn't just 
uh, not really encouraged, in spite of their obvious validity in questions of social policy. It was actively staved off with an orchestrated campaign of fear and intimidation. I am a teacher, and questioning the efficacy of closing schools was literally tantamount doubting yourself as a mass murderer. It is an extremely unpleasant, uh, excuse me, it is an extremely present and seemingly effective way of manufacturing consent, and is quite dystopian. Um, yeah. Absolutely uh, agree. And I think, I just want to say, it was one of the strongest points I think in all these debates over lockdown, one of the elements that consistently got overlooked was the fact that developing countries followed the lead of industrialized countries. So Italy followed China. But after that, you know, Latin American countries and African countries and other Asian developing countries, they followed the lead of the Western world in large part. And this was something that really came across to me when I attended the book launch for um, uh, for Toby and Thomas's book. Because, um, you know, there were the people who were lockdown um, skeptics on the panel. They specifically said how their origins in developing countries, particularly, say, uh, Sinatra Gupta is one of the signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. The fact that she was born in and had family kind of links and um, uh, in Calcutta, in India, and that she understood what it would be like the terrible kind of cost that it would be to impose something like a lockdown in enormous kind of slum-based informal economy, um, you know, mega, yeah. mega conurbation in the third world um, was a really important part of it. Right. And so, and I, that is, I think one of the main strengths of the um, Fatsy and Green book that they brought that global perspective into play and that it wasn't just a question of what happened in Tuscany or in France or Sweden versus Norway and Denmark and what have you, but also brought in Peru and brought in African states and yeah. the rest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all that said, several um, listeners, several of you pointed out that we were not questioning enough. I mean, I say we, it was me because I, I did the interview that it was too soft as an interview. I don't like hearing that. Um, and if, if indeed that's the case, then, uh, you know, that that's fair point taken. Um, you know, I thought I Can had you... probed them actually quite at, at several points. But uh, I, so I don't know if you were looking for uh, a, a different line of questioning or if I just simply didn't question enough. But, uh, you know, fair enough. Alex, it would be it would be great if you could outline the three main ways in which you're going to improve this going forward. Yeah, um, tell because... us. Because we, you know, it's not that we're disappointed in in your in your performance, but we I just am. think that you could, I will, you could I do will better. Call, okay, I will call our guests liars um, at least once yeah. during the interview. I will say that what you're saying is not true. I will accuse them of egoism or self-interest and not of of looking at the greater good, um, and I will include uh, accuse them of um, um, of being ugly. I guess that might be that might yeah. be good, or somehow Cassius versions about their dress sense. Um, I think the third the third one has a lot of a lot of mileage in it. I, mean, I guess all three of these can be applied to your po podcast co hosts as well, just to get things you know to get to get some dissensus, to get some good arguments going. Mm. I would um, definitely lose the no, territorial think... war um, in this specific episode. I think, but <laughs> oh, I'm, well, I, th I think I think none. There's no winners, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously listeners can't see what what we're wearing. No, I think it, there is a there is a sort of a, a serious point here. Like, how do you how do you get that that kind of um, balance right? Because it makes it reminds me of the uh, an episode we did with Benjamin Bratton, which is very much on the other side of the COVID um, debate, and that was an interview that I did, and um, I definitely got some some 
some feedback um, in my job evaluation report that I could have uh, asked some more critical questions. But it's a, you know, I think you do want to, you want to have a good debate with, with, um, with people. And I guess we, you know, we have the advantage of being able to unpack things and discuss them further. Um, the three of us, which is often, you know, that's when you sort of you get some of the ideas and the points that you wish you'd made come out. So we can, uh, yeah, we, I guess we can always do a, bit, a little bit better. Okay, so just two more episodes to deal with. We're going to deal firstly with uh, the last bonus bonus, and I will we'll, we'll do this briefly because we don't want to become too sort of meta on this. And then um, uh, the last one, it was a big old debate on on the Patreon, and we're going to try to uh, engage with it, which was, was uh, the dead left with Steve Hall and Simon Winlow. Coming to that in just a second, but first, alpha bonus bonus number 320. Uh, which we recorded in January and, and covered stuff from December and before. Um, so firstly, JK, JK, JK says, I don't agree with Phil that there's a capitalist consensus on degrowth. Practically speaking, it's a fantasy as growth and consumption around the world continues to grow. There are rare elites, mainly tied to the NGO or nonprofit sector, that espouse ideas of degrowth publicly, but don't meaningfully follow it in practice and almost treat it as a rather technical solution or form of redistribution, i.e. you in the developing world will eat less meat, uh, excuse me, you in the developed world will eat less meat, but more meat will be produced as the global market expands due to growing wealth in the developing world. Frankly, the degrowth discourse strikes me more as a clash pursued largely by competing interest groups in the energy sector. So it's rather more big oil versus the green lobby, um, rather than Davos versus the world. Davos wants more consumption and produ production in the capitalist economy. Mm, I kind of think that's right. Although yeah, it I makes mean, sense I feel... Well, I mean, I suppose it gives me the opportunity to um, to finesse what I was saying, and I perhaps I overdid it. I mean, I suppose what I'm, I didn't, I wasn't driving at the idea that, or I think, I mean, at least I wasn't, I wasn't trying to drive at the idea that everyone supported Jason Hinckley, is it Hinckley or Hickey, the degrowth guy on Twitter? Hickey, I think. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to suggest that his view was kind of dominant. Um, it was more that um, I think the that the kind of the degrowthers taking it as a kind of as a formally constituted set of ideas that ideology is the the sharp the kind of extreme expression of a wider malaise that seems to me to be you know spreading um and that is to say it's an acceptance of um the kind of uh, highly indebted um stagnant high inflation economies that seem to be you know, locking into place all over the um, all over the developed world, or say, you know, the fact that German capitalists haven't managed to sway the German state's um, outlook on the war in Ukraine in order to defend their own kind of industrial interests in Germany. So, but that's what I meant by a capitalist consensus on degrowth, not like uh, explicit commitment on the part of every industrialist or major corporation to you know, kind of a zero growth agenda, but more a, a willing, you know, kind of that drift into a low growth, kind of a new era of stagflation, um, as opposed to kind of looking for opportunities to um, significantly expand new areas, you know, kind of new types of growth. And, and it goes back a while, you know, I'd say as well, but, you know, in any case, that's what I meant. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you told um the ruling class if you could do such a thing that degrowth also means no profits 
they would not be degrowth. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's, there's a limit to, uh, to how much, um, degrowth is, is, is sort of indulged even, you know, um, even sort of rhetorically. Um, Steve Bobrick says, I really like George's point about degrowth and green thinking in general, putting the outcome first. Uh, that is to say that degrowth and green thinking puts the outcome first. Instead, we should put the democratic determination first and rely on the process to produce a good outcome. But what is remarkable about this moment is that the outcome is actually to some degree already prescribed. The giant objective discontinuity of climate collapse sets us this challenge, knowing the outcome of continued growth in production at the current rate, as we do, uh, come up with an authentic democratic response that doesn't impoverish workers, burn entire regions of the earth, or crash civilization altogether, this is a situation where Democrats and leftists have to respond to the objective external reality. I don't want to sound like a stuck record, but if insurance companies, bureaucrats, industry, Davos man, Silicon Valley, and finance capital can all apparently plan a response, why can't the left? I can respond to this because it said that I made a good point, which um, I agree with. No, thank you uh, for that. I think, though, I would kind of double down and and still say the idea that the that there are conditions or that there are constraints on the objective outcome that does undermine it that does undermine the whole the whole process i think the the what makes the outcome good is not that it achieves a certain end state but that it is um justified and in some senses made good by the process i.e the democratic process that produces it so and i would think that a democratic society would make choices consistent with the continuation of the human race um i definitely think that and that's you know the wager that i would be prepared to to kind of make on on still continuing to put the democratic determination first i don't think you can say that the the outcome has to be within these limits or those limits in order for it to you know that that in so doing that you undermine the, the first part of it which is the democratic process but you know i mean that's that's <clears throat> the you know that's the the nature of democracy i guess that you you know you can't have technocratic limitations to the outcome in advance um so i mean i just wanted to make a, a very brief comment which is that i don't accept this premise that um continued growth and production at the current rate will lead to the world burning up i mean that it, obviously changing nothing then yes it would if we accept the kind of that the earth burning up is a, is a metaphor um but the i mean the, the the issue is that production can expand um but it needs to be rationalized and then part of that rationalization would be decarbonizing so i you know i think a lot of discussion around green issues sees this slippage from yeah we need to decarbonize to we need to produce less and they're not the same thing I noted this recently in um, a speech given by Jean-Luc Mélenchon. A clip of it was um, shared on, on Twitter. He's, by the way, the, the leader of, uh, of uh, La France Insoumise, um, now bunded together into the Nupes, Nupes, Nupes party um, in France. Anyway, uh, kind of left populist leader in France. And he, you know, he was making this great speech um, in two uh, um, protesting workers and citizens saying, uh, who, who, you know, uh, opposing Macron's attempt to raise the retirement age, uh, basically saying, you know, we need to have free time, we need to have free time to do nothing if we want, or to learn a hobby or to care for people and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, basic, a, a very good speech defending free time um, and for our, our ability to determine what to do with our free time. 
but then it slips at the end. It's like, but if we continue, but if we want to continue producing, the problem is that the earth will burn up, right? And that was seemed to me like a, a slippage, a jump made, which is completely unwarranted. Um, jumping from a, a, a claim for more free time, whether that is longer retirement or a shorter working day, jumping all the way to saying, well, we need to produce less. One doesn't follow from the other. Um, and we can produce more and we can, and without, um, increasing climate change, you know? So I think that's, I think, and that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. I, and I, th- I I feel like we're stuck between do nothing about climate change and uh, a, a situation where it's like, oh yeah, but to deal with climate change, we need degrowth. Um, and that's a tragic I situation think, to be in. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a kind of a good example of a, of something that I'm noticing more and more, which is that a kind of a, a claim for like this, this or that political good is then finished or concluded by a kind of appeal to to climate change to kind of really, you know, kind of set off the 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 I was going to say the fireworks at the end, but you know, to kind of get people going, it does seem to be like a, you know, here, here's the, the the stakes, you know, this thing that I would be arguing for anyway. The stakes are so much higher because if we don't do it, we have catastrophe. We have you know, we have like the end of the world. So. I think it, I don't know if this does end up kind of washing out the particular like value or specificity of, of these kind of like climate related claims, but it, because it does seem like you can apply it to such a wide range of, of things. Like if we don't do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, then climate catastrophe, control the economy, collective ownership, free time, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I think it is an increasingly common site that you have like this like the last paragraph or the conclusion or the last, last bit of a speech goes on to a kind of climate-related mobilization uh, call. So um, we're going to finish this off with the big one. Uh, episode 318 and 319, The Dead Left with Steve Hall and Simon Winlow. This inevitably sparked a lot of debate, a lot of which concerns the question of nostalgia and of workerism, um, which is to say, the, I guess, the identity politics of the working class. Okay, so um, firstly, two questions from YouTube, actually. Um, Archibald Lazarus says it starts well with a very good criticism of the Corbynista era of the Labour Party. But does the endless printing of money, whilst keeping capitalism intact, really equate to the long-term interests of the working class? This being a criticism, I think, of uh, of, of Steve Hall and Simon Winlow as well as support for MMT, modern monetary theory. Mike Atkinson, also on YouTube, says it's pretty nauseating the way the left here is equated merely to Keynesianism. This is just a lukewarm nostalgia for the post-war, pre-Thatcher moment of capitalism. I'm going to continue taking a couple of questions because a lot of other ones um, kind of uh, go along the same theme. Blake says, Hall and Winlow sound almost regretful about the wokeification of Lockheed Martin and the like. Couldn't it be said that by making all ruling class institutions extremely alienating to the average person, critical theory is actually fulfilling its original purpose of destroying false consciousness? Um, That's kind of a roundabout way of, <laughs> of doing it but yeah no i mean it's it, it's kind of true you know um, yeah critical theory completes itself by the adoption of uh frankfurt school theory into lockheed martin when when they have like an adorno quote on the side of a missile that's when you you will sort of know oh, that man. circle has been complete and um false consciousness is, is no longer pr- possible yeah uh so eris says this is like listening to some yammering old racist grandpas except they're leftist 
If cultural issues aren't important, why are you obsessed with business people reading about decolonization? Again, I guess that's a um, shorthand for woke. Um, I want to hear about building a left that cares about economic issues, not crackpot theories about too many people with blue hair. Similarly, Carson H. says, while I share many of these guys' antipathies, listening to this, I get the sense that their disappointment with the past few decades has curdled into the kind of bitterness that invariably makes for weak criticism. For all their resentment of the turn towards culture, they have virtually nothing to offer in the way of an historical materialist analysis of what got us here. In so many ways, they seem to think that what killed the left was its own bad ideas, or at least those of, of its putative intellectual leadership. Um, Hall, in the episode, argues for a new cultural narrative. But how is it supposed to square with the aforementioned hostility to the cultural critique? The PMC stuff is also contradictory, setting aside the tiredness of PMC discourse. Would it not be members of this group, which includes both the guests, the hosts of this podcast, and presumably the vast majority of its audience, to whom the task of articulating such a cultural narrative would likely fall? That seems to have been largely the case throughout the history of the modern workers' movement. Instead of hand-wringing over the social positionality of the leftist intellectual, how about we try to comprehend our situation? Um, I'm going to continue, I guess, because a lot of these are on the same uh, same lines, but guys jump in. Uh, Martin Hall says, uh, uh, with regard to the Corbyn movement, rather than being a last gasp of life, with both Wilmot and Hall declaring the left to be now thoroughly dead, does it not indicate that there is a desire for socialist ideas? They characterize the whole movement as PMC, which, if true, is still in keeping with the history of the left. After all, one of the main things keeping working class people out of politics is time, or lack of time. The students, lecturers, podcasters generally have more time on their hands and so are overrepresented in these movements. The problem is that the ideas and demands of the PMC are so often at odds with the working class. So this again comes back to a question of having the right leadership with a program that can speak to the masses on questions of a political economy rather than cultural issues. So to sum up, I think the left is not dead, but has always been frustrating, contradictory, and plagued by bad leadership. Um, I want to. Yeah, I just want to kind of intervene at yeah. this point, <clears throat> only to say. Um, so I think you know. Um, I you know I mean I I don't didn't share the general kind of. Um, I take some of the points, though I still found the discussion, you know, with um, Winlow and Hall useful. Um, I take the point about the, you know, Mike Atkinson's point about seeing, and I, I mean, we discussed this a bit about seeing this understanding of the left as kind of simply the post-war social democratic welfare state when, you know, it stretches back much deeper into the 20th century and indeed the 19th century. I think that Carson H is probably right that he did um, you know, he did pick up on this contradiction that the things that they kind of criticize on the one hand, they, um, you know, they kind of criticize the cultural turn and the over the prominence of um, middle class educators and what's happened in the academy and so on with the left at the same time as they, um, I remember in particular, Steve Hall kind of making the case that, oh, you know, but uh, we need a kind of shift in education and we have to kind of, um kind of uh, bet our chips on the increasing inroads made by heterodox economics in demolishing kind of neoliberal economic thinking and so on. So there was, you know, I think there was some the contradictions there. I have to say, though, I disagree with Martin Hall's comments. Um, 
I think the uh, you know the problem isn't that the ideas and demands of the PMC are at odds with the working class. The PMC are expressing their class interest, right? Um, the question is, why does it take uh, the extreme form of this mishmash of like um, you know half digested Maoism and Stalinism and Trotskyism and other kind of weird anarchoid leftist currents? All this kind of undigested miasma of the twentieth century is regurgitated in you know kind of um, demands that are essential or arguments that are essentially between you know different wings of the human resources or academic bureaucracy. Um, and that is, you know, that's strange, but it seems to me it is actually an interest of a particular, you know, particular social strata that are being expressed um, and that it's the lack of working class presence in public life rather than poor leadership. You know, it's the lack of um, working class concerns that are being imprinted on public life because there's the lack of working class politics and a lack of working class labor organization. So I don't think we're in the same problem of just having bad leadership, which I think you could say, I mean, this was the claim that Trotsky made, right, from the late 1930s and onwards, that the core question for the left was its leadership. And I don't think that you can say that in an era in which the left has been through, you know, kind of a cumulative series of world historic defeats, but has also in a society that has been radically reorganized and doesn't have the kinds of um, organizational constituent or organized constituencies that it did in the past, particularly with a working class whose demands for redistribution, for greater public prominence, um, for greater control over productive life um, and the economy that, you know, if it doesn't have those demands to weigh down the middle class kind of radicalism, then all you will get inevitably is this weird, you know, the weird blue hair kind of um, craziness. Yeah, just to pick up on, uh, I, I think there are some, some good comments here. A point that, that um, Carson H makes about the, you know, historical materialist analysis of what got us here. So I think it is probably the most difficult thing to do is to move from kind of describing the weakness or the not the weakness but the current kind of um constitution of the left in that recent history to explaining how this happened you know what are the material bases of these ideological shifts but it's crucial to do this because it points you then towards what the barriers are um for reconstituting this kind of politics are they missteps or are they fundamental changes in you know in material politics or in the class structure and something like that and it it reminds me of again to talk about peter mayer and ruling the void that is a great example of a an account that shows why the changing kind of bases and contours of democratic theory um happened because of changes in what democracy actually meant and how people experienced it and what was being justified and particularly that kind of the, the popular sovereignty or mass participation element of that getting kind of eroded or, or kind of hollowed out. So I think this is something that is almost the next step of this analysis. It's like, okay, what 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 were the key changes which meant that the left went from this position of the kind of, you know, that post-war pre-Thatcher period to um to today and that's a really difficult you know i guess we kind of we talk about that quite a lot on the podcast and we probably don't have a 
a shared position or a definitive one yet, if, if we ever will do. Um, but yeah, I think that's, there is something which I kind of, on reflecting on the conversation, that's the next thing, right? I think there's a lot to agree with in their account, but the, the explanatory model of why things have changed like this, I think it's not enough to just say maybe that there were missteps of, you know, a culturalist turn, but what explained that? What made that appealing? What made that the um, the direction that the left did end up taking? Yeah, I mean, I, I I share the I share Carson's point. I think about um, not doing the hand wringing over the social positionality of the leftist intellectual because it's um, boring and narcissistic um, and gets us gets us rather nowhere. Um, and I'm not even going to get involved in the pmc discourse besides anyway now i think we should be talking about mangoes which is media academia arts and ngos you know because that's when when we say pmc we mean mangoes we don't mean something else you know generally um when people say pmc they don't mean um boring office workers and sales or accounting um who aren't very politicized they mean academics and uh journalists and and people like that so are you gonna you gonna give a mango theory of politics yeah, the mango. You could do. Yeah, it's it's um, if it if, well, if it's you know, it appropriately it's juicy and tropical. With... Yeah. Um. Anyway, no, I think there's. Yeah, we don't. You don't want to get too bogged down in the like this acronym or that five letter kind of compound acronym word or whatever. Um. But sorry, I interrupted you when you said what you <laughs> think we should well, do, not what we yeah, shouldn't do. Um. I mean, I I, I think that the points that many people have made about nostalgia and also about even a kind of, you know, tacit workerism there as if the working class are good people as if good as individuals, as human beings, which is irrelevant and was always relevant to Marx. I mean, I think that was kind of in many, one of the many ways Marx, Marxism is distinctive um, in not wanting to hold up the working class as an empirical object, but as something which is kind of prefigurative caring about the working class in a political sense, not in just a social sense. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of nostalgic approach is just wanting to go back to the politics, the left politics of the 1950s and 60s. In that regard, um, there it, it, kind of a lot of the left shares, or at least the those leftists who look nostalgically back to that period, share a lot with the right that they also want to go back to the 1950s and 60s of, you know, stable families, low immigration, white white population, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so they just choose different aspects of the 1950s um, to hark back to. And this is important to remember as well that the 1950s was itself the end of history, the end of ideology. It was after the disaster. It was after the Second World War, the Holocaust, fascism, and the smashing of the workers' movement. So it would be, I think, rather perverse to look back nostalgically for that and to set that as the starting point of where left politics should go. Um, I think that would be um, to to kind of get things upside down. So, and I and I, I think in that regard, I'm kind of agreeing with Phil in terms of the weirdness of a lot of left politics today, in terms of carrying all this baggage of whatever Maoism and Stalinism and whatever else, um, and not not to mention social democracy, um, which just feels odd. And I would like to try to kind of, if we can, on this podcast as well, kind of cut through all that. Um, one point, and I, I'm going to read another uh, question here, and I 
rather agree with, um, well, certainly with parts of it, which is Nathan Beasley's point that I love beating up on middle class left liberals as much as the next guy. But the central conceit of a lot of this nostalgia for an authentic materialist left is the fiction that there remains something called the working class, which exists independently as a cultural formation. Um, advanced capitalism has brought about the decomposition of the contending classes, not their consolidation. In such a context, the idea that the left should advance the interests of the train drivers but not small business people is purely arbitrary. Uh, the only way forward is to return to first principles, which means normative questions. What does the good society look like and how do we bring it about? Materialist politics often functions as an excuse to avoid thinking about these normative questions. So uh, as I said, I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I think the the question of class formation is, is crucial. There is no working class, and certainly there is no, as used to be spoken about in the kind of post-war period, of a kind of working class culture, which was distinct to bourgeois or, or middle class culture. That has um, largely, or mostly, or even entirely fallen away. Um, and so, and, and of course, class formation is not just a matter of culture, but even on the cultural level, you can't speak of a working class culture. So, I think we have to confront that reality rather than speak kind of gesturally about the working class as, as this kind of subject, which it obviously isn't. I mean, you know, whether I, I, like it I disagree. So. I mean, I disagree with Nathan Beasley here because I think it conflates the, the idea there's a, you know, so he says you can't talk about a working class without talking about culture. Well, you, and I don't think that, I think that misses the point, right? It's the problem isn't that there is, um, you know that there requires a kind of a, a class, a cultural class formation, but that it was the working class was defeated, um, and the process of that defeat also encompassed a social, a social reorganization. So I mean I think you know it's it's true that um, you know the idea that the <clears throat> that the um, that these kind of arbitrary distinctions are drawn, particularly by moronic leftists who talk about, you know, um, kind of defending the interests of train drivers, but not small business people. Um, and that, that, you know, talking in terms as if those, as if the interests of those different groups were clearly, had clear kind of an independent political expression. I think it's true, you know, that it would, it's entirely mystifying to talk in those terms. Um now that said, I'm sympathetic also to Beasley's point about, you know, returning to first principles. Um, I'm not sure I would frame it so open-endedly in terms of normative questions yeah, I wouldn't about what the good society either. should, you know, what the good society should look like, but more about what are the, um, you know, the questions that are tasked that are left unfinished by or left um, that flow from the defeat of the left. And also the nature of modernity, you know, the kind of the tasks posed by by modernity itself, um, rather than kind of, you know, abstract questions uh, going back to ancient times about what does just what is justice? What is a good society? I'm not saying those questions are irrelevant, but they don't seem to me as to be politically pressing. Yeah, maybe the politically pressing questions are what are the key like what are the key contradictions in the current you know, the current form of the state in the current sort of politics and what solutions do they do they then point to? It made me think, though, this comment of Nathan Beasley's, which I think is an interesting one, of when we talked about the Rui Braha piece. Oh, I can't pronounce his first name. Rui. Rui Braga. You, you can't it? pronounce his surname either. <laughs> Rui Braga. 
that guy, um, where he was, I, I can pronounce Thompson. So he was talking about E.P. Thompson's um, piece on class struggle without classes. And it seems like this is a, a, a keep coming back to this as a good description of like the situation where you do have material conflict over resources, but you don't have the organized like actors that you had previously. So you have a very, very different situation. And that's, you know, in that sort of situation, the intermediate classes can can play a, a, a much more outsized role. So there is some um, role for this kind of like who's in which classes. I think being too like sociological about it is not the, the way forward. You want to be more political in the sense of how to, mm-hmm. different groups of people act. But yeah, I mean, that's the starting point, right? Isn't it that, you know, what is what is the, the structure of class conflict and, you know, what are the contradictions? Not necessarily, I, I would say, I'd probably tend to agree with Phil. What are the questions on like, what is the good life and um, these kind of Greek questions? Not, there's nothing, not that there's uh, nothing in Greek <laughs> philosophy, but it's, you know, we're past that now. Um, so, I mean, in response to this, a couple of people have pointed out that we're actually in many ways closer to the 19th century than before because of the process of proletarianization, the proletarianization of the middle classes, um, the professional classes, with the PMC being proletarianized. And I think I think that's true and that, you know, the bourgeoisie is potentially narrower, the ownership class is narrower, but that doesn't equate to class formation necessarily. So again, it's probably wrong to jump from one to the other and to say, well, because they're, the class of non-owners, the people who have no part in society, um, is much, much larger than ever. That therefore, um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's larger than ever, but anyway, that that that, uh, that, that therefore means that there is a kind of the formation of, of a working class. Um, you know, again, we're not a sack of potatoes, but I think someone suggested um, a, a can of Pringles instead. But yeah, Um, one last point, Uh, Richard R. says it's a bit difficult or rather it's a bit odd to declare the death of the left when it's clearly such an essential boogeyman for virtually everyone. Even these professors, Bunga boys included, require the left as a foil for their own distinct analysis. Leftists are going to destroy Christianity, wreck community, dominate the government, take away your guns, turn your children gay or trans, infiltrate or corrupt the trade union movement, abolish the police, abolish free speech, sell us... (laughs) <laughs> all out to China or Russia or whomever, all while they sit back shooting heroin, dyeing their hair blue and drinking expensive lattes all day in the wrong sort of cafe. Communism remains a ghost and a haunting, it seems to me. Yeah. Sounds that about right, me. Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the left right there. That's why they're so terrible. Um, yes, that, that specter. Um, yeah, I guess we'll have to live with that specter uh, a little while longer as much as we might try to shake it off or cut through it. Anyway, thank you everyone once again very much. Uh, for your questions, for the debate that you're all having and that we'd like to contribute to and take part in um, on the Patreon. Um, you know, long may it continue. Let us know what you think. Also, let us know um, about how, whether you like this sort of episode and how we deal with it. If you think, oh, actually, you know, I don't want to hear so much from such and such a person. No, you can't. Not, not, we're not starting kind of little petty tiffs between. No, we're, we're not allowing one thing. of the three of we're us not, to be voted but, out. This isn't a reality yeah. TV show. <laughs> Um, or your or or fellow patrons, uh, for that matter, either. But uh, yeah, but you know, you if you want... this isn't you can't get rid of the judges on reality TV, right? No, exactly. Um, sadly, yeah, well, you can only get rid of the whole thing, which ideally you could. But that is meant to 
that's not a reflection on this. Anyway, um, <laughs> Phil's raising it. We should end this. We should end this very uh, soon. But again, anyway, thank you again. Let us know what you think. Um, if you think we should take a different tack on on uh, addressing these questions or addressing uh, your questions, let us know. And we will be back with more uh, very soon. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.